Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Chris Davidson. Chris is a former academic who's taught in both British and Emirati universities and has written on the politics of Gulf states predominantly, although he's also touched on a number of, of other issues. He's the author of, uh, of an increasingly large number of books on the topic of, of Gulf politics, perhaps most notably after the sheikhs, and more recently from sheikhs to sultanism and I'm delighted that he's here to talk to us about his, his work and his new book today. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Many thanks, Simon, for the very kind invitation. I'm greatly looking forward to talking to you. Likewise, um, our paths have been crossing for, for a, a number of years now, so I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking with you more about this, this fascinating new, new book of yours that I was really delighted and honoured to, to write an endorsement for. But before we get there, Chris, I must ask, as I always do with, uh, with all my guests, what was it that, that piqued your interest in, in Gulf politics? What prompted uh, a journey into, into the academy? Well, in many ways, the story here begins back in the 1990s, before I was even at university. I'd spent some some time in, in the Gulf states, most notably the United Arab Emirates. And um, you, you will appreciate back then, this was a very exciting place for a young person to, to see um, skyscrapers literally coming out of the sand and uh, a breakneck speed of, of economic and, and infrastructure development. Um, so coming from a, a northern town in the UK and seeing all of this before my eyes was really something incredible. The key moment, though, probably came when I was traveling back from a wedding of a close friend in South Africa when uh, the plane had some issues, not, not too serious, I, I hasten to add, uh, and was required to land in Dubai Airport. And then there, were, uh, there was an offer made uh, by the airline for us to spend a couple of nights in Dubai and that must have been in about 1998. Um, and then this was a time of uh, golden Bentleys being offered the lotteries, uh, huge picture portraits of rulers and crown princes draped on walls, mm. uh, and some uh, incredible uh, developments happening uh, before my eyes. So by the time it came to do a master's dissertation and, and then eventually a PhD dissertation, it seemed a natural topic was to try and uh, write about uh, the United Arab Emirates and try and provide a, um, a fully fledged case study uh, for the um, for the literature uh, on the, on that um, on that topic. So, Chris, going back to that time in the nineties, then what were some of the the questions that were sort of on your mind as a as as someone from from the north of England, uh, a place that was perhaps uh, worlds away, if you want, from, um, the, from, from the Emirates in terms of the, the speed of development and transformation. In fact, um, the, the North had gone through its own period of, of transformation in a pretty negative way in the previous decade. So what were the, the types of questions that were really coming to your mind when you were there? Well, I suppose... Um as part of my, my undergraduate degree, which was, which was in history, in fact, um, I'd been particularly interested in the history of, uh, of modernization. And I suppose the, the theory of uh, economic and social development uh, inevitably leading to some form of uh, political pluralization or even democracy eventually. So to see with my own eyes uh, part of the world where clearly that was not true, 
clearly one was having uh, the development, but without any form of um, political reform, or at least very little. Uh, if anything, um, autocratic uh, authoritarianism seemed to be the name of the day. Um, and uh, the leadership of, of, these, of this, this country, the United Arab Emirates and many of its neighbours, seemed very clear on that point. So that was really quite a, um, quite a shock to the system and something that I felt I really needed to, to explore, ideally with uh, plenty of data and ideally with um, uh, plenty of uh, interview opportunities and survey opportunities um, to pursue a postgraduate education. And as you say, this was something that, that jarred with my understanding, uh, my upbringing, certainly in England and uh, many of the theories and, and concept, concepts I'd studied uh, as an undergraduate um, uh, at, uh, at, K K at Cambridge University. Was there always a sense that you were you were heading into the the academic sphere? It sounds from your your sort of recollections that that was always something that you were wanting to do. I think it's um, I think it's difficult to to pinpoint um, when I actually made the decision to to stay on. Um, uh, I must confess I didn't uh, apply for any other form of uh, employment or any other kind of <laughs> right. uh, studies at the time. Um, so in many ways, I, I um, saw it as a natural path, a natural progression. I was extremely keen because of my earlier experiences to develop a PhD proposal uh, on the UAE and try and write uh, one of the first proper political science books in English on the on the subject. Um, so that that idea, that imagination was was always there and. and Maybe with a, a few a few thoughts at one point of, of going into merchant banking, possibly international law, uh, that eventually was swept away when I really got my uh, teeth stuck into the PhD research. So your PhD was where? Uh, my PhD was at St Andrews University, um, which uh, is, is a beautiful place up in Kingdom of Fife in Scotland, but it's also an extremely cold place. <laughs> so even though it has beautiful sandy beaches, uh, you may appreciate that I did everything I could to spend the majority of my time on field work on the beaches of Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Sharjah, where um, uh, the temperature was much better yeah. and the food was more exotic and uh, overall it was a much more exciting, exciting place to live. I can imagine um, the the streets of St Andrews aren't lined with the skyscrapers of uh, of Dubai or Abu Dhabi, for instance. Who are you working with there, Chris? Who are, who are your supervisors? Raymond Hinnebush, who uh, I'm pleased to say is still still very much there and still very much going strong. Who must have supervised dozens of PhDs by now, particularly on Syria, um, mm. Egypt. Uh, theory of middle powers, which I believe um, you yourself have been working on as well, uh, and several other several other topics too. Fantastic! I was at an event with Ray not so long ago, in fact, um, which was always a pleasure. So uh, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm sure you were um, you were in good hands there. So can I ask Chris? And I I must ask at this point, given that. The, the types of things that you flag up in your new book about the challenges of, of working on Gulf states and, and the Emirates and Saudi in particular, what was it like doing field work at the time during your PhD? Things were obviously dramatically different back then. So what was it, what was it like? 
I think in many ways, um, in the early 2000s and, and, and even, even the mid and late 2000s, when I had a full-time academic teaching job in the UAE, this was a sort of golden era in, in many ways. Um, there were uh, plenty of opportunities for foreign researchers and even indigenous researchers to do solid on-the-ground uh, primary data gathering through interviews, through surveys. Um, I remember even conducting a a survey on national identity and, and handing out hard copies in a, in a shopping mall at one point. Goodness. Um, there were certainly certainly a few red lines. Um, they were never published, of course. Um, they tended to involve uh, the military. They tended to involve the UAE's relations with its key allies, notably uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but as long as one didn't cross those lines, more or less everything else was okay. And in fact, by the late 2000s, there were even some endorsed topics of criticism that scholars could research uh, involving, um, involving migrant labor issues and some human rights issues as well. These were the sort of limited hangout issues that the government was more than happy for people to be researching on because it ultimately gave the impression that this was a freer uh, society uh, and a freer academic environment than it, than it genuinely was. Sure. So I guess at this time um, in the in the mid mid to late two thousands, you were you were incredibly prolific and and you published two wonderful books with Columbia, uh, the Dubai: The Vulnerability of Success, Abu Dhabi Oil, and Beyond, um, which are, are really really prominent and in key texts in um, in in understanding the Gulf and what well, the, the Gulf states and the Emirates in particular. So just tell us a little bit, if you can, just briefly about what you were trying to do in those, um, those books. I mean, people may, may know your more recent work, but I think, I think these two, these two texts are, are really important in understanding the Emirates. Well, with, with, with both of those books, I was attempting to provide fairly robust case studies on the two principal emirates of the UAE, uh, which, of course, behave very differently. They have very different political economies, Dubai, of course, being the poster boy or the flagship of, of um, post-oil economic diversification, its tourist industry, its real estate, its port infrastructure, whereas Abu Dhabi being the more traditional uh, hydrocarbon powerhouse focusing on oil exports, focusing on uh, uh, oil financed, uh, oil subsidised heavy industry, and of course building up its vast uh, sovereign wealth funds as well. What I was really trying to, to show was how uh, their economic economies, uh, their, their uh, respective economies had been developing, uh, and crucially, how their political systems had been evolving towards this um, system of distributing wealth uh, as per rentier state characteristics that some some listeners may be familiar with uh, through the provision, for example, of public sector employment for citizens, a vast raft of subsidies and other benefits including free education, free healthcare, and various other perks to essentially ensure that the majority of citizens could be kept on board um, with this alloc allocative wealth and in return would offer some degree of political acquiescence, thus essentially um, scuppering the uh, chances of any um, uh, move towards uh, um, uh, democratization. Fantastic. It's really, really interesting seeing those those different 
sets of developments relating to to political economy, of course, playing out, resulting in in dramatically different types of, of politics and and engagement on the world stage, I guess. So from there, and I, I guess coming out of this type of research, you you become to take an interest in in transformation and. I, I wonder if you can pinpoint the moment or the, the time where you start to, to ask questions about what comes next. Because obviously you've, you've written uh, a number of articles about uh, transformation and transition in the Emirates. But there was this, this wonderful book that came out, I think, in 2013 called After the Shakes, which was hugely provocative. It posed some really important questions about the nature of, of political transformation. But I wonder, where is the genesis of, of that idea? Was it purely provoked by the uprisings of 2011? Does it have its roots much earlier than that? What, where were the sort of the ideas uh, emerging from? Well, I think certainly, as with as with many um, scholars of our generation, the, the events of the late 2010, early 2011 were, were certainly um, uh, great um, great catalysts. Um, there was certainly a, a zeitgeist at the time of a big change. Of course, that that wasn't as uh, that wasn't as obvious perhaps in the Gulf states, with the exception of, of Bahrain, um, and that certainly fueled my my interest in this idea of, of transformation and, and, as you say, what might what might come next. Um, but in my case, um, I'd actually been having uh, uh, developing a dialogue with um, so-called oppositionists um, before 2011 uh, in the Emirates, in particular, but also in, in Kuwait and some of the other Gulf states, and trying to understand um, what what visions they had uh, they had for the future. Um, of course, as it as it turns out, uh, you know, with the benefit of the 2020 hindsight. Um, the, the, these were perhaps minority views that that uh, clouded the the, um, the overwhelming um, importance of this rentier state uh, supported social contract between the mass majority of citizens and the ruling elite. After all, it's very hard uh, with, with hindsight to to expect, perhaps with the exception of Bahrain and Oman, which have more indigent populations. It's very hard to expect. Um, the average uh, Emirati or, or Saudi, for that matter, um, leaving behind their four-wheel drive and flat-screen television and taking to the streets and risking mm-hmm. life and limb. Um, but perhaps what we what we may have seen at the time, especially in these wealthier Gulf states, was some sort of um, some sort of gentlemanly uh, uh, dialogue developing between the ruling elites and coalitions of oppositionists. You may recall. Uh, in 2011, for example, a petition was sent to the president of the UAE by 133 uh, Emiratis representing a cross-section of oppositionists. Now, of course, the way that was dealt with um, was far heavier-handed than many expected. And that heavy-handedness, of course, um, was perhaps an early early signal uh, of the sort of um, autocratic authoritarianism that has since been developing in that country and certainly Saudi Arabia, and um, in many ways formed the uh, the core line of thinking behind my my uh, my latest work, the core line of investigation. Um, so certainly, the 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 moments of, of two thousand eleven and two thousand and twelve were 
uh, extremely evocative, uh, served as a catalyst. Um, the enormous and apparent impact of, of, of social media um, certainly uh, played its role as well before a more sort of sober and, and, and realist uh, Chris Davidson um, developed in, in, in more recent years. <laughs> in part, I think, in part, I think also uh, supported by having spent more time in uh, former socialist and former communist countries uh, since then, and perhaps right. understanding uh, how, uh, how such systems um, um, uh, and their legacies were, were far poorer than I perhaps uh, idealistically imagined several years ago. There was a, a very bold claim in in one of the early editions of the the book, and it's I say one of the early editions because there is a, a, a huge testament to the success of After the Shakes that it that it was published several in several different uh, editions, if I recall correctly. I think I have two or three different versions of the book, but um, in in one of the earlier versions, you talk about this coming collapse, um, and if I recall yes. correctly, there was a a prediction that things would would end in a, a dramatic transformation in the Gulf states. So maybe this is what you were uh, for people who who haven't read the book for a while or have mm. have not come mm. across it. Maybe this is what you were getting at with being consumed with the the excitement mm. and the idealism of of the uprisings and political opposition. So um, partly, um, pa pa partly. I mean, there was no, there was no prediction that this would be a, a, a violent, dramatic transformation. Sure. Yeah. Um, it would be in in one shape or, or another, yeah. or one one sh one shape or form of another. And um, w w without trying to engage in, in, in semantics over this, uh, what what I've really tried to do with the most recent book is show that in the two wealthiest and most populous of the Gulf monarchies, which are, which are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which in many ways are also the two biggest global actors of the Gulf monarchies. Saudi Arabia, of course, being a G20 member, the UAE holding World Expo, potentially having the Interpol president, etc. What, what, what in many ways I've tried to show with the recent book is that during that time frame, shakily rule did actually come to an end yeah. in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, perhaps even earlier in the United Arab Emirates. Now, this shakily rule, of course, which is discussed frequently in earlier Gulf Studies literature, many listeners may be familiar with it as a sort of culturally rooted, tribally rooted consensus and consultation-based rule on many of the Arabian Peninsula states, um, with also a degree of uh, Islamic uh, legitimation as well, especially in Saudi Arabia. Now, what we've seen in, in Saudi Arabia is in early 2000, 2015, Sheikh rule essentially being pushed to one side by a populist, more autocratic, authoritarian mm. uh, uh, regime, which for better or worse has pulled up Saudi Arabia's socks, um, provided all manner of uh, um, uh, economic uh, reforms and, and, and visions since then, whether we, whether we um, have faith in them or not, and essentially diverted Saudi Arabia away from probably the brick wall it was heading towards, unless it made those changes very, very fast, as, as sure. Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia himself has said. You know, he inherited a treasury that was on the brink of going bust at some point in 2016. Um, similarly, in, in, in the United Arab Emirates, one can argue that uh, under the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, which, is, as many are aware, is the de facto ruler, not only of Abu Dhabi, but the whole UAE Federation, 
uh, under him, under MBZ, as he's known by his, uh, his uh, initials, uh, his, his acronym, um, he's done much the same over a slightly more extended period of time, becoming Crown Prince in 2004, but really getting his hands on all the levers in 2007, and then really getting the upper hand by about 2010, 2011, and in many ways being helped by the response to the Arab uprisings and the need for security and stability in the Emirates since then. Mm. Um, so these two sort of Bonapartist uh, figures um, have in many ways um, uh, not only suspended the old form of shakely rule in their respective countries, but uh, arguably collapsed it at some point at some point between 2011 and 2015, the latter being Saudi Arabia. Sure. Uh, Chris, the reason why I, I, I bring up the, the end of After the Sheikhs was because I think there's a there's maybe a degree of, of sadness that, that I detected, maybe this is me projecting, on the, the more recent book, From Sheikhs to, to Sultanism, the sense that the, the sort of the democratic, transformative ideals that you articulate uh, across After the Sheikhs sort of disappear. They're sort of, well, not disappear because they're forgotten necessarily, but because of the, the mechanisms, the technologies of power that are... Um, operating across the UAE and indeed across across the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia have become so strong they've been um, forged they've been refined to a point that they they curtail that space for those aspirations that you articulate um, back in 2013 you articulated in 2013 to even be um, be heard in this transformation to a form of, of sultanism? Yes, uh, um, the sadness perhaps not, not coming from myself, but certainly many of my uh, colleagues sure. and uh, interviewees and uh, people I've known through the years. Um, in, in, in my own case, uh, this, this um, academic journey of my own, and certainly I think will be reflected in this, this new book for readers who are familiar with my earlier work, they'll They'll probably they'll probably um, feel it's a rather ruthless uh, volume. It's it's unemotional. It's dispassionate, and in many ways that reflects my own my own position uh, my own position and my own line of thinking um, these days. Uh, um, in the past few years, I've I've spent much time much more time than I had before in uh, poorly functioning uh, democracies. Um, very poorly functioning post-communist and post-socialist regimes uh, and in many ways have, have developed a more grudging um, respect and in some cases approval for more authoritarian modes of, uh, of development and um, that's not to say you know, I, I admire the Chinese model uh, or, the, or the Singapore model uh, explicitly uh, but nonetheless there's, readers will probably, probably find me a quite different writer um, to the one of uh, ten years ago, I certainly found that, and it was, it was strange reading this after reading your earlier work. That there, maybe that's where the sadness came from. That there was a sort of a dispassionate voice, rather than the, the sort of the more um, aspirational, more. I don't quite know how to articulate the the voice and after the shakes. Maybe that's something for you to articulate, but. There was certainly a different tone to this book, a, a resignation, perhaps, that, that comes through. Um, 
yes, I would say I would say going a bit beyond a, a resignation. I would say it's it was more of a more of an acceptance in many ways. Um, the research for this book, I I tried to learn a lot more uh, than I ever had before about the the inner workings of these states and uh, tried to canvas a much broader range of opinion in in, in society and and some of my earlier earlier academic academic interest notably the the shadow wars project which looked at the role of extremist organizations and even political islam organizations in the region um again provided me with some degree of uh respect if not grudging respect for what has been happening in saudi arabia and the uae with regard to the enormous crackdown on uh, extremist organizations Sure. Uh, whether elements of the states, uh, whether private networks of private individuals, and to some extent uh, their curtailment of, of organised political Islam uh, groups and their various uh, fellow travellers. Could you tell us just a little bit about the the data then? Because that was the other thing that really struck me that this is this is thorough, this is fine grained, it's incredibly detailed. Um, the the early parts of the book set up all of this this rich data and the and the methods that you're using to get the data to demonstrate the point that you're making. So perhaps you could just tell people um, what it was that you did to get to this conclusion, please. Well, in terms of in terms of ga- gathering data, of course, uh, in authoritarian contexts like the Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, many of the obstacles are. are entirely what one would expect in, in other authoritarian settings. There's a opacity when it comes to official data. In some cases, there's a complete absence of data. Um, equally, with regards to uh, domestic civil society, media, academic institutions, again, there are clearly many, many limits uh, imposed, and, and it makes it hard to access high-quality uh, secondary and primary data. Um, equally, with regards to um, doing it oneself through interviews and surveys, very, very hard to do that uh, on the ground these days. Nonetheless, what I've tried to to um, look at in this book, I've tried to provide something of a, of a roadmap for a new generation of scholars looking at these countries and, and, and the region, and perhaps trying to introduce some possible workaround techniques. Um, where we see threat, there is also opportunity. These are highly connected uh, societies now. Uh, Almost everyone has an internet connection, almost everyone has a um, social media or WhatsApp account. There are ways to directly contact ordinary people that were not there when I was doing my original face-to-face PhD fieldwork back in the early 2000s. Equally, um, these are increasingly well-traveled citizens, uh, with many having the ability of visiting major cities uh, elsewhere in the region, um, Istanbul, Cairo spring to mind, and of course London and New York as well, which are known as the Eighth Emirate and and Little Arabia. (laughs) So there are plenty of opportunities for remote interviewing, for direct uh, internet surveys uh, that were just not there before. Um, There are clearly some some problems, some concerns over, over framing effect, for example, how the slightest variation in wording with um, electronic surveys can can greatly distort the outcome of your your results. Equally, interviewing people in um, in uh, third party cities uh, elsewhere in the region 
may limit oneself to interviewing the people who have the means and the ability to travel. After all, in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, frequently opposition actors are, are um, flagged with travel bans. Um, so there are certainly some some caveats to these uh, to these new approaches. Yeah, but as you say, there are opportunities, and I think that's something else that comes out of the book: the sense that you're not viewing these transformations as something that that dramatically curtails the capacity for academic research on authoritarian states, but that there are new opportunities, new ways of doing doing this type of work. Yes, I believe that there are even more opportunities available now um, than when I conducted my own uh, PhD work um, many years ago. Um, different techniques are needed, um, different levels of awareness of, of, of red lines and how fluid they might be uh, are, are also needed. And there's also a, a greater need than before to navigate the fields of power, not only inside those countries, but in our own countries too, as, as you and I are both well aware, um, these Gulf monarchies, in particular Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, um, have attempted to not only uh, shape academic and research agendas within their countries, notably um, expelling uh, academics, um, uh, expelling uh, uh, foreign um, government organizations such as the NDI, Gallup, um, and uh, 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 the Conrad Adenauer um, Institution, for example. Uh, but they've also tried to shape um, research agendas outside of their countries as well. As wealthy states, they've been able to uh, fund major think tanks in the United States, uh, leading departments in American and British universities. So there's a need now, I think, for scholars to be even more acutely aware um, of this than in the past. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that's that's one of the other things I took out of it. This this need for for reflection, consideration, critical awareness of of not only the politics of the region, of the, the two states in particular, but also their their broader engagement with with global politics. But Chris, we've taken up a, a huge amount of your time this morning, and it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you about about your new wonderful book and your 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 earlier work as well and and everything in between so thank you so much for giving us your time this morning it's been an absolute pleasure many thanks simon likewise a great pleasure thank you chris a huge thank you to chris davidson for his time just now uh, talking through his his work his career and his really fascinating new book from shakes to Sultanism. You can find Chris on Twitter and he is at Dr. Underscore Davidson. So that is at Dr. Underscore Davidson. You can engage with Sepad on Twitter. We are at, at Project Sepad. And uh, yeah, please do follow us. Please do check out our other podcasts, some of the videos that we've put onto YouTube. Uh, I think there's a, a contractual obligation for all podcasts to request people listening to like, subscribe, share. Uh, probably missing something, but hopefully it ticks the box. Uh, we really do appreciate all of your your time, all of you giving up your time to listen to what we're doing. Hopefully you've you found this as enjoyable as I did talking to Chris and, and recording uh, with him 
talking about his work. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with him and uh, a pleasure as always to, uh, to, to do this type of podcast. So, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>